Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. On this show, the legends come to talk. People like Chuck D, Kareem, Martina, Chomsky, and John Legend. Yet, of all these folks, we've never had anyone on the show who's been compared by thousands of people to a god. To a god. To a god. We do now. We have pro wrestling legend Mick Foley. Mick Foley, a.k.a. Cactus Jack, a.k.a. Dude Love, a.k.a. Mankind. And to help me, I have my friend and pro wrestling aficionado, Damian Antoine Smith. Damian, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, but I want you to call my pro wrestler name, Damian the Omen Smith. I've been working on this for a long time. <laughs> Damian the Omen Smith, I love it. We're also going to speak to Mick Foley about his advocacy for Rain, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. And now, without further ado, WWE Hall of Famer, New York Times bestseller, Mick Foley. Before we start, I just had to ask you this, because I was watching some old interviews uh, with you to prepare for this, and I just got to know if this was true or not. Uh, is it true that you know the song and the artist you would listen to to psych yourself up before matches, that was Tori Amos? Is that true? Oh, yeah, that's definitely true, yeah. Snow can wait, I forgot my mittens Wipe my nose, get my new boots on I get a little warm in my heart when I think of winter There was a song called Winter And uh, there were other songs along the way that I may have listened to occasionally But I can't recall like any specific match or event, whereas the Tori Amos songs are really pronounced, like the song itself and the, you know, the ritual of listening to her music was part of the shows and part of the build-up. Whether it was my first ever singles barbed wire match in uh, Japan in January 1995, or uh, uh, my backlash match with Randy Orton in 2004, um, Edge 2006, like uh, that ritual was like part of the match. She learned about it through her nephew and was very uh, was very touched, and uh, has since become uh, bonded over and become quite good friends. Oh, all right. Oh my God. Awesome. That that's awesome. So so I think even people who've never heard of you, who've never watched uh, a WWE or wrestling broadcast, just heard your answer to that first question and get that you're a different kind of cat, a different kind of thinker <laughs> in this world. And before asking you anything else, I wanted to ask you. What are the roots of this for you? I mean, is the way you think about the world, the way you think about politics, I mean, is it how you were raised? Is it uh, someone you knew? Is it a book you read? Is it uh, uh, maybe a movement you were a part of? Like, what, what, what uh, shaped your thinking? Uh, it's probably uh, all of those things. I'm not sure, but the movements would have come in later, like after my wrestling days. I was too blinded by wrestling to care about <laughs> outside interests until I retired and realized the world didn't revolve around me. But um, a couple of days ago, I was thinking uh, I'm, I was doing some water aquatics, <laughs> which are easier on my back and knees than other forms of exercise. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, my neighbor three doors down, uh, a guy named Matt Daw, who's a psychiatrist in Los Angeles. And he was also a great athlete and the valedictorian of our, uh, of his class and really if I got ever got a chance to see him again, thank him for being a great example. He was a great athlete, but always kind, reaching out to help other people. And I think some of that 
rubbed off on me. You know, my dad was somebody who was always uh, trying to help others. Uh, my mom was somebody with a two master's degrees who took uh, college courses for the fun of it, still <laughs> polishes off like two novels a week. And so I think all those things were influences. And if my daughter wasn't here next to me on the couch, I'd talk about the, uh, the Tori Amos song, Winter, and how it probably in some way addresses like uh, the inner child in me that never thought I was tough enough or strong enough or brave enough. And that's where the line uh, that always caught me, that says, when you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do. He says, when you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do. The first time I heard that song in... Uh, um, on a long road trip in the deep southern part of the United States in the backseat of Max Payne's Buick Electra decked out in the greatest of stereophonic equipment. He was bombarding me with, uh, he and Nick Patrick, the referee, were bombarding me with heavy metal to the extent where Guar was like the sensitive guys of the assortment. And I, I finally said, Max, do you have anything like a little mellower than this? This is after like four hours of it. Uh, and he goes, he had this deep voice. He goes, you know, Jack, I think, I know he sounds kind of like The Undertaker, but he did. He said, I think I have something you'll like. And then he put on uh, uh, Little Earthquakes. I'd never heard anything like it. Uh, and I just uh, bonded with it. <laughs> yeah. Years go by and I'm here still waiting With a ring with some snowman But I only can see myself. And now, Dave, I don't mean, to, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job here on the podcast, but this seems like a nice way to segue into my uh, rain. Uh, I, that's the next question. Mistake. Yeah, yes. The whole reason we're doing this podcast is that uh, you're doing this like two week long benefit for rain. And for folks who don't know, that's the rape, abuse, incest national network. And I, I wanted to know about the, the, that connection and also how you got involved in that work. Yeah. I mean, I got involved directly through meeting uh, Tori at, uh, in 2008. I met her in comic con. And I think it's safe to say even with my wife nearby that I was fairly smitten and uh, I'd never been on the internet on my own which was probably a good thing. Like I'd been on in the sense that I could ask my kids, hey, can you show me something here? And they go, here you go, Dad. And I'd look at it, but never actually gone on the Internet. And uh, after meeting her, I, I really wanted, I wanted to see if she had posted a photo of the two of us. Because if she had, I felt like I could then post a photo on MySpace to show you how long ago 2008 was. But anyway, I went on there, and I didn't see any photos. But uh, what I did see was a link to uh, the Rain website. And uh, I knew what Rain did because I'd been a fan of Tories. And I was aware of it, and I was aware of like how important it was. But I honestly didn't think as a guy, like it just, just it shows a little bit of you know ignorance. I didn't see how I could help. You know, there seemed to be other things, that, you know, like... Make-A-Wish and Child Fund International, like sponsoring kids, like that seemed to be the best way that I could contribute. And then once I read about Rain, I looked and I was like, wow, there are like no men stepping forward. Uh, and I thought, this is a place where I could really make a difference. Like, I'm not undermining the importance of 
Make-A-Wish and great groups like that, but they have like all-star teams, great sure. celebrities who advocate for them and do a wonderful John Cena being the guy who's granted more wishes than anybody. And Rain had survivors, you know, like no one from the outside. Like you didn't have to have had a terminal illness to stand up for a child who, who was terminally ill. But it seemed like the only people who were standing up for survivors of sexual violence were other survivors of sexual violence. And I thought, this is a way I can get involved. Um, and I started contributing uh, financially. And about a year after that, I realizing that Rain depended so much on his volunteers, I thought I could understand the organization and be a better advocate if I did had some volunteer experience. So I uh, did like the 40 hours of online training and the two days of live training and went on as a weekly online hotline volunteer, which was a great but kind of harrowing experience and really shows you, you know, the, the need which, so you, you were an anonymous hotline volunteer, like people yeah, would call yeah, up looking yeah, for help I, I, and you would be, you would field those calls? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was on, online. I wouldn't, I wouldn't field phone calls. I would, uh, by that time I'd learned a little bit and I could navigate their, uh, their dashboard and uh, I did have an anonymous name and I was on, I usually go on late at night. I had put in a lot of hours, probably too many hours, especially the first year. Kind of threw myself into the deep end of the pool. I didn't like wade in, you know did as much as I could for as long as I could and um, kind of burned myself out, but found that by creating this sweepstakes for rain that I'm able to um, create awareness and we're able to raise a lot of money every year. Uh, I think it's the largest fundraiser they have. And it's, it's you know, strange that wrestling fans create the largest source of income for the largest anti-sexual assault organization in the U.S., but that's been the case the last few years. Wow, that's really, really stunning. And we'll, of course, put out all the information of how people can be a part of this, how they can support Rain. You are really recognized as an anti-sexist in wrestling and in a world that is very sexist, as well as a <laughs> tremendous supporter of women pro wrestlers. Is there is there a connection between the political commitment around sexism and the fact that you've been such a proponent of, of women wrestlers? Ah, maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe it has shaped my uh, not only my worldview but my my uh, wrestling view. But I think it's also very possible that I just would have become a fan of the female wrestling because it's improved so much. I think because the bar has been set so much higher and women are expected not expected they're allowed to achieve so much more in other parts of the world and in other organizations they you know they they always had been but in WWE you know they were a very valuable part of the company and I had written a couple articles over the years really praising them for all the work they did behind the scenes but you had people like Natalia you know and who could really go you know doing these short matches on TV and it was kind of a, a you know waste of potential and all of a sudden you started hearing about these matches the women on NXT were having. They were just tremendous. So the game changer for me was tuning in, I think, May of 2014, when uh, Natalia wrestled uh, Charlotte, Ric Flair's daughter. Uh, I know you know, but I don't know if everybody listening does. It was just a beautiful match, emotional and, you know, and technically incredible. And uh, I just, I, it caused me to really look deeper at women's wrestling, and I really uh, fell for it. Mm. Uh, Damien, you had a question. What do you want to ask? 
Yeah, just to follow up, how much impact do you think Sarah Del Rey uh, had on the change in women's wrestling? For, the, for people who don't know, Sarah Del Rey is a coach at the WWE Performance Center, and she is widely recognized as, for the past decade, one of, if not the best women's wrestlers across the globe. And now she's coaching the, the, the women in NXT. I've heard a lot of them mention that Sarah's impact has been exponential. Have you talked to Sarah? How much do you know about how much influence she has on the division? Yeah, you know, I really I did not know Sarah before I started writing about uh, the NXT women, and so it really created a nice bond. When I met her, I felt like I'd known her for years, and from what I understand, she's had a tremendous amount to do with um, with raising the bar. When she came on board, I've been told and read that the women were instructed to wrestle like divas, <laughs> and, and I, I, I like. And Dave, I really appreciate you recognizing Sasha Banks about a year ago as one of the athletes you most enjoyed seeing, not just oh, female across athletes, the sporting athletes. landscape. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, I know like that was confusing to someone like her. And Sarah helped raise that bar, and expectations rose, and uh, and along with it, you know the the level of, of wrestling. So uh, you no longer say like she's as good as some of the guys. A lot of these women are among the elite people in the entire industry. And I, I think it's great. Are, are you uh, on record of wanting to just do away with the word divas altogether and just call them pro wrestlers? <laughs> I am on record. Yeah, I have mentioned that a few times. I think it's time. Uh, I think it, it served a great purpose. It was a great idea for branding, set the WWE women apart. But divas, you know, doesn't have an altogether positive connotation. I thought last year would be the year of the woman. And uh, I think I was wrong. I think this will be the year of the woman in professional wrestling. No, I, I think you're right. Um, and and I, I did want to ask you this, because the other thing when we're talking about fighting sexism and the way you've done that by promoting uh, female wrestlers, of course, but you've, you've also spoken out against slut shaming in wrestling. And what's so interesting is like, I think for some people who only have a tangential idea of the world of wrestling, that could seem like, you know, opposing pizza in New York City. Like it's such a part... <laughs> of how these stories get told about women is about slut-shaming. Are we moving away from slut-shaming? And what has been the response from the WWE universe to some of your statements saying, like, we, we need to get away from this way of talking about women as if it's evil, if, if they're sexual beings, and that's some sort of put-down? In general, it's been really positive. You know, there's going to be, we're still going to be kind of stuck in the past. And I think to some sense, people don't understand, like, well, how are we supposed to promote the women if we can't do that? And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a learning process. I'm on record as saying that I was going to, uh, this is a breaking story for you, Dave. Uh, I did a podcast with the wrestling torch, pro wrestling torch. And I'd mentioned how, um, I'd recently reopened the lines of communication to Mr. McMahon and, and said that, I planned in the future to uh, get in touch with him and ask if I could help out with uh, creative on the women's end, even if it was just uh, sitting in a couple of meetings a month and offering suggestions. Luckily, I happen to be one of like four guys in the business who does not live in Tampa, Florida. Like I'm one of the few guys who can drive to Stamford, Connecticut from my home because I live in uh, Long Island. And then I just like, you know what, instead of just saying it, I'm going to do it. And the next thing I did was I reached out to Mr. McMahon. He affirmed it in his own colorful language. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's something I'll be looking forward to doing. And you know, little by little, you know, it's uh, you, you learn a lot from watching uh, 
um, here comes uh, Santa Claus and, uh, and the great song with Chris Kringle and the winter warlock, uh, you put one foot in the other, in front of the other, and that's you know the best way to make progress. You know you can't you can't run until you walk, and so it's it's a, a it's a process. But I think we're I think we're doing it slowly but surely. I, I'm act, I'm haunted by the Tori Amos cover of "Here Comes Santa Claus," which hits me so deeply. <laughs> she, no, I'm just she kidding. can cover anything, by the way. <laughs> she, oh, she's a, yeah. Oh, she can do any. She, I'm telling you, she can. I, this is something I haven't. Talk, I don't think I've ever talked about. Um, but my <laughs> my original goal when I found I was being inducted into the the Hall of Fame, and before I realized that they had Bruno Sammartino on board and Bob Backlund, and that they wouldn't need help in um, selling tickets to the Garden, was to have Tori do a solo performance of Jim Croce's song uh, "The Hard Way Every Time." <laughs> Yeah. Always wanted to do a video to that song, a little known song, but just this amazingly touching song, at least to me. And uh, she was actually interested. And then once I found out, then not only did Bruno and, and Backlund come on board, but Jim Johnston, the uh, WWE um, musician, had written his own song for me. And at that point, you really can't tell Jim Johnston that, you know, his, his song won't do. So I kind of lost that idea. But that was, <laughs> but she, yeah, she can cover anything. We talked about Sasha Banks a little bit, who I think I, I told Dave about a year and a half ago was my favorite professional wrestler, and I say that to this day. And I don't mean women. Uh, yeah, it's like at, right now, she's my favorite, especially since Daniel Bryan retired. Sasha Banks and the New Day, I would say, represent something in pro wrestling. I, I as an African American man, been waiting to see my entire life because pro wrestling hasn't always had the most panoramic view of people who aren't white men. And uh, watching the New Day and watching Sasha Banks, I'm finally getting to see young black people acting like what young black folk act like. They're not job soul broing, you know, they're not from Africa somehow, <laughs> you know, no headbutts, no dancing, a little, a little bit of dancing, but mostly tongue in cheek dancing, kind of progressive presentations of African-Americans and in the Fed, and that's kind of fun to see because I've been watching this my entire life, and every time a black person came on screen, I cringe. So is that something that has been a conscious decision to try to step into the 21st, or even, hell, the late 20th century in terms of how the entire world is presented on the show? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really a positive. I think it's only fair to say that it hasn't been a WWE problem. It's been a systemic problem and i wrote in my my first autobiography about going on a tour of um the west indies and how every baby face in the card from the men to the women to the i don't even know if you're allowed to say they would be billed as midget wrestlers but little people every person of color used the headbutt as their, their finish so they, you know, they were kind of helping forward the stereotype. every guy no sold the turnbuckle like that had just been the way it was for so long that it's only in the last decade or so that you're seeing people really free from those type of constraints. I was just mentioning to my wife that when I was doing research for a novel I wrote in 2003 that had an ex-wrestler as a character, doing the research I found out that uh, in the 50s there was actually like a Negro title. Black men were not allowed to even wrestle white men. And it goes without saying that uh, in the South, the black audience was seated in a different section than the white audience was. And there was a guy named Sputnik Monroe who really broke the color barrier in that he not only uh, teamed up with a black wrestler, 
for the first time, but also stayed in the uh, black hotels and ate at the black restaurants and was considered really a hero to that community. You know, you have to remember that's 60 years ago. Uh, so a relatively short time in the evolution of mankind. So progress is slow, but it is it is happening. And uh, people like uh, New Day and Sasha Banks create, I think, that sense of urgency. No doubt. Now, isn't Sputnik Monroe, if I'm not mistaken, because of this, he's the only white person. Like His wrestling gear is retired in the Memphis Rock and Soul Hall of Fame or something like that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard Jim Cornette tell this story on another podcast. I don't know. It, 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 if not, it should be. It's. Uh, I'd like to think it is. Wow. I got to get your thoughts on this, Mick. And I'm sure you've been asked this um, in the last several months, but it's been swirling around my brain here. The rise of Donald Trump. I mean, this is somebody who's in the <laughs> WWE Hall of Fame, for goodness oh. sakes. How much of, and I'm asking you this not like, are you for or against Donald Trump? Partly because I know the answer to that, but it's more like, <laughs> is Donald Trump's persona... How much accountability does pro wrestling have for not just the creation, but the popularity and familiarity of Donald Trump? Like people see him, it's like, oh, that's a heel or or a heel we love to hate or whatever it is. I mean, how much of of, of Trump? I mean, and I guess you got to hang out with him a little bit. I mean, how much of what we're seeing is the guy? How much is a heel persona? And I guess how much accountability does pro wrestling have? Not WWE, but pro wrestling have for the even existence of uh, Donald Trump. I'm not going to put this on pro wrestling. <laughs> I'm not going to. No, we, we'll, we'll take Fair the enough. blame for some of this stuff. I'm not, I'm not taking a blunt blame for Trump at all. <laughs> you know, uh, and the only interaction I ever had with, with, with the Donald was, uh, it was, I uh, came through the curtain at the Madison Square Garden and, the Undertaker was the first person to see me, uh, and he gave me a big hug, and Mr. McMahon gave me a big hug, and I walked in through the other curtain, and Donald Trump said, nice job. I can't do a Donald Trump imitator. He was officially the third person I saw. That was the only interaction I ever ever had with him. So I'm personally not taking any of this blame, uh, <laughs> or credit, depending on how you look at it. He did a great job when he was in WWE, you know, he, no doubt about it, he he helped create quite an environment for the WrestleMania that he was a central part of. He hosted two of them. But no, um, this is bigger than any one industry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a bigger phenomenon than just a wrestling one, that's for sure. Uh, have, you, have you endorsed a candidate as of yet? Are you? No, no, I, I'm going to steer clear. I, uh, I'm disappointed with politics in general. I really thought that when uh, President Obama was elected that there was going to be a a sense of cooperation. He, I mean, he kept the Secretary of Defense and he kept the top military advisor, you know, had his top rival, Hillary Clinton, come in as Secretary of State. And I, I thought he was really trying to create an atmosphere of cooperation. And when that got, you know, snuffed out, I just I just lost sense that there was any hope for the two parties. Like, I just, I, I think it's just one is bad and the other's worse. The Republican candidates... I'm pulling for Kasich in the, uh, <laughs> just hoping these people come to their senses and realize there's a, even, a, you know, he's signed a couple questionable bills in the past few weeks, but I think he's a guy that at least has some, some sense to him. Sorry if I'm alienating my, uh, my, my conservative base here, but, uh, I, frankly, I'm not, I'm I think really you're speaking to the majority of the country right now. <laughs> One's bad. The other's worse. Let me put it this way. My son is 12. He saw Ted Cruz for the first time. And he goes, 
that guy is so fake. <laughs> just, the way he kind of like crinkled and looked at the the camera, and, you know, Maya Fellomer, and it was like, yeah, they, they call our business fake. You know, uh, it's not been lost on people that my cheap pop, which was meant to be kind of ironic and winking and nodding, has been just stolen by all the candidates just trying to get the cheapest, easiest possible reaction from the hometowns in which they appear. But they're not doing with any sense of irony. You know, they're, they're, I'm, not, I'm not, not enthusiastic about it at all. Wow. It's a great observation. They are ironyless in terms of their cheap <laughs> pop uh, attacks. If they reacted like Mick Foley and turned to the camera with a smile and a thumbs up, people might actually <laughs> it'd be no, far you, more you know, the, the thumbs up. Can I give you the background of the thumbs up? Please. The thumbs up is my tribute to Owen Hart paying tribute to the, you know, like the baby face of the 80s, you know, where everything was kind of like the over the top, yeah, you know, like <laughs> the, the fiery baby face, you know, uh, you look back at the old, you know, the guys like slapping the mat on their comeback. And I'm not picking on the guys because they did a great job, but like, you know, like, come on, like, I remember Austin and I, you know, doing this all the time. We were in WCW, like, come on, you know, the fists in the air, slapping the mat, come on, I'll take you out, that type of thing. And they always had the thumbs up, yeah, and the photos. And that was my tribute to Owen, <laughs> winking and nodding at the baby faces before him. And, uh, you know, when in the latter day mankind stages as commissioner, I kind of uh, captured that and uh, made it my own. That, you know, you honed it to a fine art <laughs> as commissioner. Before... Um we let you go, Mick. I always, whenever I interview somebody of, of, of your uh, stature, whether it's Noam Chomsky or Mick Foley, <laughs> I always ask my audience if they have questions, and I do have a couple. Can I ask you a couple audience questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. My, Michael Kimade wanted to know. He said, do you think wrestlers need a union? And if there was a union, what would they bargain for besides wages? You know, on the surface, it would seem like that would be great for everyone, but it's been explained to me by a few different sources that it would almost be impossible, and it might not only hurt the business, but be the death of it, in that if there were a union, it would be really hard for guys starting out. You know, SAG kind of incorporates everybody. SAG wouldn't allow people to work for the wages that wrestlers have to work for in order for independent shows to be feasible. You know, they wouldn't let... Guys drive 700 miles. You know, wouldn't let guys sleep in cars and sleep eight to a room and do the things that guys need to do to pay their dues. And I don't think they would allow them to leave jobs, seek their own employment, and go independent and come back. I just I think it would benefit people who were in WWE. I think it would benefit people who were in uh, TNA, but I don't think it would benefit the thousands of guys out there. I mean, you might benefit a hundred people, but those hundred people can usually be um, covered by after if they've done any acting at all. And that's really the solution is that guys uh, use the wrestling to do acting and then become part of after and SAG. That I did not know. Uh, Jan Frankel wanted to ask what, and this actually dovetails with with a lot, an issue we talk about on this show a lot, is what mental health support is available to pro wrestlers, and has it gotten better or has it changed at all since the the, the horrific tragedy of Chris Benoit's family? I mean, is is there mental health support? Um, I, 
honestly don't know. You know, I know when uh, I get a, a bi-monthly letter from WWE, they offer a, quite a few services, drug and alcohol counseling, uh, financial classes for guys who are having trouble saving their money. Um, I do not know if mental health is uh, is covered. I think it should be. I think a lot of guys deal with depression, um, not only from the head injuries, but from the sense that, uh, you know, as I explained to Mr. McMahon, whether guys realize or not, when they're in WWE, it's as close to the land of Oz <laughs> as you can possibly get. And as Dorothy explained to her aunt and uncle, some of it was horrible, but most of it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know how long Dorothy would have actually been happy in black and white flat Kansas. Like I think after a few weeks, <laughs> she realized that she may have overstated the benefits of being home and wanted to go <laughs> back out there. <laughs> What's that line from Lebowski? It's it's hard to go back to the farm once you've seen Carl Hungus. Or words to, to that, that sounds good. That sounds good to me. <laughs> I think it's only normal to have problems. And I just put out an article today on Facebook, thanking people for supporting the six years of live shows I'd done, and saying that the uh, major benefit to me was just finding something to replace the way I felt when I was in the ring. And this is when you get on stage and sometimes to very intimate audiences just tell stories. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And then, believe it or not, my son and I, uh, on Christmas Eve, he does work with me as my elf. I did four houses this Christmas Eve as Santa. And uh, you don't have many kids listening to the show, do you? No. All right, I'm Santa. We actually okay. don't let them. <laughs> so secret safe. I'm Santa. Uh, and my son did two of the homes. He did the last two, and we go in, and essentially we put on a little performance with our back turned to our audience. And we leave the house after the second house, and I told my son, I said, I'm not kidding you. Like I feel like I just did a huge pay-per-view match, except instead of wrestling in front of you know, 15,000, 17,000 people live and hundreds of thousands on pay-per-view, there's a dad and two kids on a staircase <laughs> three feet from my right shoulder as I pretend not to hear them saying, it's Santa. <laughs> and uh, so I get that same rush from a couple of different things. But I think uh, other guys are really in search of that. And I think it's, uh, it's really difficult when you, you, know, you either live out your dreams and find out that there's a, uh, several decades <laughs> of living left to do. Or if uh, your dreams don't quite come true because it's a subjective business uh, and the Swift don't always win the race. Yeah. And as I think you said once, don't let anybody else define what success is when you enter this (laughs) The only really wise thing I've ever said. That is wise for a ton of walks of life. Trust me. (laughs) It's it's, it's a killer if you start thinking what other people think success is. Well, I I tell people that I give that same piece of advice for almost, you know, I I just uh, kind of paraphrase myself when talking about WrestleMania. Like, don't worry about who the main event, you know, what the official main event is. Like, if you're a wrestler, you should try to have the best match on the card. You know, you can have your WrestleMania moment the way Edge and I did when we were not, you know, by any means in the main event. And for me, for example, you know, I'm looking at the women's match like it's my main event. That's the match I'm most looking forward to. So I didn't allow anyone else to dictate what success was for me when I was a wrestler or will I let anyone dictate what what's important to me as a fan. Exactly. Be Savage Steamboat. Um, there you go. There I, you go. Jesse Zarley wants to know, how difficult compared to other matches is a hell in the cell? And what are your expectations from two men who are 
around the age of 50, The Undertaker and Shane McMahon? All right. Uh, the first part of the question, I'll answer by saying I, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be until uh, in June of 98 when I had the match with The Undertaker. Uh, we officially had like a small match like a week or two ahead of that to set it up, and I had no recollection of it until I even saw the uh, the WWE DVD set. And it's not that you know anything was you know wrong with my long term memory. It's just that you know you tend to remember the things that went really well or really bad, and you kind of you lose sight of some of the things in between. Um, and that you know obviously that was a tough t- tough night at the office. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was, the match itself was incredibly difficult and people trying to live up to that have had a a tough time because the bar of expectations has been so high. And uh, what's interesting about this match is that you're right. Shane McMahon has been out of wrestling for six years. Uh, he's in his mid forties undertakers, I believe my age, which is 50. And so neither guy is going to be at their physical peak. But they have an ability to tell a really compelling story, and I'm sure there will be some bells and whistles involved. <laughs> and the wild card uh, being that Shane is completely fearless <laughs> and will want to leave his, you know, his mark at WrestleMania. So, it, and that also makes it scary too. Yeah, yeah, and scary for me because I'm afraid he's going to, you know, upstage the '98 event. You know, oh. to be completely honest with you. No one will ever do that because Jim Ross isn't there to scream. By God, is my witness, he's broken in half. That's true. So. No, that's true. The absence of Jim Ross almost guarantees that it'll never be upstaged. <laughs> I love this question from Ashley Souther. How would you book a match between Mankind and Cactus Jack, and who wins this match? Ooh. Oh, man. I, I'm glad you didn't throw in the Dude Love in a No, in no, no, no. Drive. I, I've heard you speak in other interviews about your feelings on Dude Love. I wasn't going to do that. Because <laughs> uh, that answer's easy. Dude Love hides under the ring. Let's see other guys beat each other up. Flips into the cover. Probably... Uh, ninety ninety five era Cactus Jack <laughs> beats any version of mankind in a very uh, uh in a slobber knocker. Yeah, ninety five Cactus Jack was angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had something to prove. Uh, but so did ninety six mankind. By the time you know ninety nine rolled around, I was kind of the guy that ninety five Cactus Jack would have hated. Oh wait, I got one last yeah. question. My producer Go is just it. like he's got Sorry, an itch. I never do this um, personally. I've discovered and rediscovered wrestling a couple times in my life. And one time was during your, albeit brief stint as a part of the rock and sock connection. Yes. And I just wanted to ask you as a viewer, the pure joy and fun of that combination really came across. Was that as much fun to participate in as it seemed from the viewer's point of view? And was it as fun for the rock as for you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think uh, we, neither one of us, I appreciated it at the time. I think it was just something we saw as something we would move on from. Uh, we didn't think it would be something that people would remember 16 years later. Like we talked about that a couple of years ago. Like we had no idea. As I get asked you know, almost every day about the cell match, and then right behind that is the, the teaming with the, the Rock and Zach connection. And when people say, you guys were the greatest team of all time, and I'll say, <laughs> can you... 
can you name one match that we had? And then they draw a blank. And they don't remember the matches. They remember, like you said, the, the pure joy that we brought them. And that really was just brought, brought in from you know our ability to improvise and play off each other. You know, at no time did Vince suggest to me that it might be a good idea to start stealing The Rock's catchphrases <laughs> and for him to catch me and reprimand me. A lot of bad blood between these two. We know that. The Rock says he knows what your crazy will do. So tonight, The Rock says one time you will be the people's partner. What? Yeah, wait a minute. It's going to happen. Wait. Put your hand down. But The Rock says this. Don't you ever, and The Rock means ever, steal The Rock's phrases again. Ah, I knew that was coming. Or did anyone say, you know, it might be a good idea for The Rock's sunglasses to accidentally fall off. <laughs> At which point, because he's The Rock, he can't admit to an error and pick them up. You know, so you make you'll bend down, pick them up, put them back on them. It was play the rock. We say, the rock, thanks you for that. And you know, we just had a chemistry. And I say, you know, if the rock's listening, and I know he listens to the edge of sports. Oh yeah. You know, now that he's accomplished so much in Hollywood, and he realizes there's an empty spot in his mantle for that uh for that uh Academy Award, it's time to do a buddy flick and reunite yeah. the rock and sock <laughs> connection. If you smell, what did The Rock just tell you? He's an idiot. Oh, he's Nick's a great guy. He ain't all there. He may, maybe not. Too many hell in the cell matches for him. I'm with it, and, <laughs> and and The Rock knows he has an open invite to come on the show. And believe me, if he's on the show, I will grill him like it's 60 minutes about when that Rock and Sock movie's coming out. <laughs> all right, thanks. Mick Foley, one last time, what can you tell our listeners about how, how to support Rain? Yeah, uh, well, they can go uh, to WrestleManiaDreamVacation.org uh, or Rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. And uh, either one, would t- the WrestleManiaDreamVacation.org will take you directly to the, uh, uh, the sweepstakes. But you could also jump right from there, uh, you know, with a click over to find out how to donate or to volunteer. Or if you or a friend needs help, it's free, it's anonymous, and the help is invaluable. I, I, thank you so much. I, I got to ask one more question. I'm sorry because I keep hearing your kids in the background and I can't get out of my mind the memory of Beyond the Mat, of how upset they were to see you get so hurt and the fact that they're in the business now. <laughs> well, yeah, my son Dewey's on the creative team at WWE. Um, Noel's just a star in the making. I mean, that's just a matter of time. <laughs> Noel. Noel turned a big corner when TMZ uh, showed her. Like she's officially a celebrity when TMZ, because they interview a lot of people and then they decide what to keep and what to throw, get rid of. And uh, I actually saw the interview with TMZ uh, last night. I don't, I don't want my kids wrestling. I really don't. I know Huey wants to be a wrestler, and he's here. People are wondering why I have my kids at home. It's uh, we homeschool the two youngest kids. So as soon as this interview's over, that that guy's hitting the books. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, lo- I love the wrestling business. It's been really good to me. And uh, like I said, it's, you know, in, he's WWE specifically, but the wrestling business in general is a lot like the Land of Oz. You know, there, there are some troubling spots, but as we mentioned earlier, there's a, a lot of hope along the way uh, for some of those troubling spots. But much of it is really wonderful. And if 
guys could learn to simultaneously like reach for the brass ring and smell the roses along the way, they could better appreciate everything the business has to offer while they're in it. Reach for the ring and smell the roses. That's what we're going to call this week's show. Simultaneously. <laughs> hey, Mick Foley, thank you so much. If you ever need a homeschooling guest lecturer, let us know. <laughs> All right, I'll take you up on that. Little Muhammad Ali guest lecture. We'll come in and do it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Edge of Sports. All right, thank you very much. And now for the section of the show we call Choice Words, where I sound off about an issue at the intersection of sports and politics. You can find a link to a loose transcript of what I'm about to read in the description of this podcast. And I want to jump right in right now with something that's really disturbing me that's happening in high school arenas in the Midwest. Uh, The sports world, as we know, is always in a drive for eyeballs, always in a drive for clicks, always in a drive for attention. And because of that, over the last six months, they've attached themselves to the ultimate attention getter, Donald Trump. They've legitimized him over and over again by breathlessly reporting the love showered upon him by the likes of Tom Brady, Mike Tyson, and Mike Ditka. They've also granted him softball interviews on top sports radio programs like Colin Cowherd's show, where Trump gets to say things like, quote, We need very strong people because our country is being taken away like candy from a baby. We need the Tom Brady of negotiators, while the host, in this case, smiles blankly. Donald Trump has, in addition, been endorsed by NASCAR CEO Brian France, who cracked down on the Confederate flag at races, yet has no compunction about raising Trump's profile with campaign-ready quotes. But now the Trump love and the ideas he inspires is traveling into the stands, and this creates a different dynamic, one marked by racism, harassment, and the potential for violence. In the Midwest, there have been two instances we know about of high school basketball teams with Latino players being denigrated by white fans and students from opposing teams with the chant, Trump. Perry, Iowa is a town of just 8,000 people. It's actually a multiracial school in a very monochromatic part of the country, and they take a tremendous amount of pride in this. The Perry basketball team has Latino, white, black, and Native American players, and it really stands as a proud symbol of how they're able to function as a community. In a recent game against a high school called Dallas Center Grimes, the DCG fans not only chanted Trump, but racial slurs about how they were going to kick the Perry players out of the country. By the way, Perry won that game over DCG 57-50. to That was a public school matchup. In Merrillville, Indiana, two Catholic schools, Bishop Noel and Andrian, faced off. And Bishop Noel has a large number of Latino players. Bishop Noel had to face an Andrian fan section, student section, where they were holding up a large Trump head and had a banner, which somewhat bizarrely, I guess they thought this was an insult, it read... ESPN Deportes. Andrian students also, according to numerous reports, chanted, build a wall and speak English. Ashley Hammond, whose cousin plays for Bishop Knoll, observed afterward on Facebook that the Andrian administration was just laughing at their students' behavior. She wrote, what kind of administration allows its students to support hate speech and racism openly at a school-sponsored event? A Catholic school at that. Is the Bible really the backbone of your Catholic school when you allow more than unsportsmanlike behavior? You allow your students to taunt with racism? 
Again, in this case, it's worth noting the racist loss, 56 to 52. Something symbolic about that. Now, the Donald Trump campaign has already shown us that things we think happen in other countries, namely white supremacists and nationalist violence attached to a leading major party political figure, are starting to coalesce here. In those other countries, particularly Europe, we've seen this political support of violent nationalism find a natural home in the stands at sporting events. For decades, fan hooliganism has been organized into sporting brown shirts, shock groups for a fanatic brand of fascism. And in extreme examples, racist fan clubs have become something more extreme than just run-of-the-mill headcrackers. During the breakup of Yugoslavia in 1992, Serbian fan clubs, most infamously the Red Star Soccer Club, quite seamlessly became a death squad for nationalist leaders. Today, the fan club for Beitar Jerusalem, that's a soccer club in Israel, has been spotlighted on ESPN for its violent actions against Arabs that have invited comparisons to a lynch mob. This is what makes it so deeply disturbing to see the hate heat wave of Trump find some purchase in the sports world. Because on a non-political day, in the sports stands across this country, people are assaulted, they're stabbed, all kinds of horrible things happen. This violence is tragic, but as incidents, they are isolated. A Trump-inspired act of violence, which seems frankly just like merely a matter of time, holds the potential to trigger more. Powerful people in sports and sports media have helped to legitimize this man. Now kids who just want to play basketball find themselves involuntarily on the front lines. And now for the section this week that we call the Just Stand Up Award. This week we go to Maplewood, New Jersey. And the Just Stand Up Award goes to an Olympic fencer by the name of Ibtihaj Muhammad. She is the first Muslim American Olympian to compete wearing a hijab. And she is also black. She's a woman of African descent who's a Muslim wearing a hijab. And she's been subject to all sorts of harassment and taunts. And you know what? She stood up to them and stood up to them strong. Uh, In an interview she just gave, she said, quote, I can't walk around late by myself anymore or go see friends at night. We're living through a really crazy moment, a time when a lot of minorities are afraid to call the police. And she told a story to The New Yorker. This story is remarkable, where she was with a group of people in a pizza parlor, and she started to be harassed by a group of young men. And police officers stood by and didn't do anything. And this is what she said about it. She said, I was surprised that they weren't saying anything to those men, even just leave them alone. I thought about saying, excuse me, officer, and then I was afraid it might escalate. So I didn't say anything. Now, Ms. Muhammad has also been unafraid to speak out against Trump. Uh, She's tweeted, friends don't let friends like Trump. And in an interview with AOL Build, she said, I owe it to other minorities and to the Muslim community to use my position to speak out against bigotry and hate. So this is really a remarkable story. Her name's Ibtihaj Muhammad, and she's somebody who is going to represent this country at the Olympics, wearing a hijab, standing up against racism, standing up against Islamophobia, and doing it with a lot of guts and doing it with her voice loud and proud. So I just wanted to give her a shout out and also say to Ms. Muhammad, you have an open invitation to come on board. (laughs) 
So thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of the Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports or send me an email. I read them all to edgeofsports at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. And go back, listen to the old episodes, especially last week where we had legends, NFL Hall of Famers Willie Lanier and Ken Houston on to speak, as well as Melissa Harris, Perry producer Jameel Smith. Damien, Damien Smith, who was with us this week, my buddy, thank you so much for helping me do this interview with Mick Foley. Uh, you are now an indelible part of an experience I will never forget. Is there anything or anyone you want to shout out, anything like of that sort? Not going to be doing any shout outs, but uh, thank you so much for having me. Edge of Sports is produced for the Panoply Network by Dan Bloom. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Bloom Sports. And our intern is Dustin Foote. Thank you, Damian Smith. Thank you, Mick Foley. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.